Welcome to Health Media Now with award-winning author and host Denise Messenger for a lifetime of health empowerment. Live by being in the pink, meaning P stands for being persistent, I stands for using your intuition, N stands for networking, and K stands for obtaining knowledge. Our guests entertain and share cutting-edge information. They share with you what may have taken years to achieve through experience in their field. Become inspired and motivated. Reach your full potential with fascinating tips and products. Receive a lifetime of benefits from authors, doctors, practitioners, healthcare providers, and learn about exciting new products. You asked for it, and we deliver. Now, here's your host, Denise Messenger. Hello, everyone. We have a really special show today. This is March 29th, 2019. We're going to be talking about palliative care. Um, We have an expert with us today, Rhoda Nader, and she wrote a book called Case Management, A Palliative Perspective. As an award-winning case manager with an extensive background, she's going to be able to guide us through the entire process and kind of enlighten us as to just what really is going on out there relative to to hospice, et cetera. So let me hello, Rhonda. Yeah. Hello. I mean please. Rhoda. I'm sorry, Rhoda. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, why don't you talk to us a little bit about what got you on the path that you're on today? In other words, where did your career start and why? Well, it's it started a long time ago. In fact, in the ICU, one of the nurses was saying, oh, my God, I'm going to be uh, 30 <laughs> next week. And I thought, I've been a nurse longer than you're old. You know, I've been a nurse for 43 years. And um, in my book, I just quickly kind of went over the way it was back in my day, um, 1976, There was um, glass IV bottles. I came from Vermont. Um, It was uh, pouring medications on the floor. Um, Patients that were terminally ill and children were brought into the hospital and put on uh, IV fluids, uh, which we know now causes a lot of pain. They oftentimes had um, intractable pain, and it was not well-managed at all. Those were really kind of dark days. Um, I went on. I was a director of nursing in a little nursing home uh, close to my house, and um, then um, there was an opening in one of the local home health agencies in Vermont. And in Vermont at that time, um, they had a certificate of need that, uh, all um, all counties were covered by one agency. And in Vermont, that meant sometimes a 150-mile uh, circumference that you covered. And we had um, everything was uh, covered in that, in that home health agency. And then um, Diana Pierce, who was starting up a hospice program, approached me and asked me if I would be interested in being one of the Um, starter hospice nurses and there were six of us at that time 
Um, we had to be on call two nights a week, and I think for a couple of years we worked um, two or three weekends a month. So it was tough. I mean, in the winter, you know, heavy snow and people couldn't get out, and but there were no inpatient hospice units except for a little 12-bed unit in northern Vermont, and I was in central Vermont. And basically there was nothing that we did not do in the home for patients to die at home. So it was pretty rare for a terminally ill patient to go to the hospital um, unless, like, say they fell and broke their hip and it was for pain management, you know, something like that. But Mm -hmm. very, very rare that um, we had a very robust uh, registry, hospice registry program. And so when patients were terminally ill, we could um, do um, continuous care in the home so that the family could be at the bedside and they weren't the caregiver. And years ago, I um, I started an end-of-life case management program at um, Blue Cross of Vermont and was recruited to build a inpatient uh, case management program at the University of Vermont Medical Center. And there were... Um, I mentored and precepted uh, 18 case managers, and we had 10 social workers and some utilization nurses. And basically, I've just kind of evolved that way. I I did oncology case management at the hospital and some end-of-life case management. And then um, really it was, to be honest, when I started there, and this was years ago. We're talking almost 20 years ago. I can remember I was assigned to all the University of Vermont um, oncology group. There were 18 of them and two fellows, and um, there were four physicians in a private practice. And I can remember telling them that I was their case manager and was pretty much told, put your name on the board, and if I need you, I'll call you. I was Mm. forbidden. Yeah, it was like I was in, in Vermont. It's pretty enlightened, I think. And I was forbidden to um, refer anybody to palliative care. Um, They saw it as like giving up. And so what I did was I just kept working with the patients anyhow, one right after the other. And it was a service-based case management program. So um, those oncology patients, when they came in in under those physician groups or physicians, Um, I followed them wherever they were in the hospital, and that's where our whole program was done. And I got to know my patients really well, and I think I helped them with a lot of things, and I worked in tandem with our social worker, and pretty much we had a lot of patients with extensive disease that were, A, still working, only in the hospital for something beyond their control, or inpatient chemo or something like that, but we totally transformed that whole community, I felt. And we had such a great relationship with the home health agencies. I'd go out and uh, see patients sometimes, or the case managers would come in the hospital. So there was that continuity of care, and they got to meet who was helping them. And eventually, anybody that had advanced disease, it was okay to just get them set up with palliative care. So you know, people that had had a lot of symptom management, they were 
they were just so transformed. It was just like they had a life after that. And I guess that was the biggest thing. Um, I think I was telling you a few minutes ago, We, 13 years ago, believe it or not, we uh, got a call and moved here to Arizona because um, John's dad was um, not doing well and his mom had just died and we made the decision to move out here. And so I worked at uh, Blue Cross down here and then eventually I went back to the inpatient setting. That's really what I like. Um, and I just found that uh, it was lagging even farther behind than the East Coast because East Coast palliative care is pretty tightly established now. And out here, there was no palliative care when I moved out here. And basically anybody that had um, intractable symptom management or couldn't be cared for at home, they didn't have the support system, they went into any one of the inpatient or um, one of the contracted units, so that's where they'd go. And there was, a, well, right now I think there's 101 hospices here right in the valley in Phoenix. And so it's very competitive. There's some that are nonprofit, some that are our profit, um, you know. But basically the care is the same, but and palliative care has just been kind of like a fledgling type thing out here. It hasn't really taken a hold yet. Is palliative care synonymous with hospice care? No, and I think that's why people are so um, resistant to it. Um, palliative care is for anybody that has a life-limiting or life-threatening condition. So if someone has breast cancer and they have um, metastasis to the bone or whatever, and they're probably still working, um, they would highly benefit from palliative care because palliative care generally is done by a team from the hospice. It is sometimes it's a subsidiary of the hospice, sometimes it's a different division of the hospice, but it's hospice uh, certified staff that are certified in pain and symptom management. They have that comfort around end of life issues that have um, in palliative care down here. Um, now that it's up and going, they can even come to a nurse practitioner or a physician can even come to the house now. So they've come a long way. I mean, it's still not a full-fledged program, but it's really for anybody. I mean, when we first started doing palliative care in Vermont years ago, we called it a bridge program. We had different names for it. And I had more patients on palliative care in my clinical practice than I did on hospice care. Oh. And, you know, sometimes it was just a phone call. Sometimes it was just, you know, like nausea, pain, um, bowel issues. You know, it could be any respiratory distress, any of those kinds of things that could be better managed. And then the other thing is on palliative care, if someone gets better, I had a little girl that was waiting for her stem cell transplant. It was like her third uh, stem cell transplant. And she um, she had been on palliative care and then went into hospice care. 
And she started getting better, and she started packing her little bag to go to the to the um, transplant center. I think it was in Wisconsin at the time. So palliative care, the difference, uh, the key difference is you have the support of qualified, comfortable staff, but you can still get treatment. So someone that's on palliative care and has, um, like, colon cancer, for instance, they could still get their chemotherapy, they could still get their radiation, they can still get all their treatments, and it's not going to interfere with it. In fact, they work with a physician. Um, It's very collaborative. I guess it's a very comprehensive, collaborative program. Um, Hospice care, however, is like a package deal, under Medicare at least, and under most insurances. So uh, once someone is eligible for hospice care, and what they is have the, a life. And what is, the, what is the eligibility for hospice care? Well, they used to say you, you had six months or less, and I think um, that's generally the rule. However, um, it's someone that usually has a short time to live or a, they don't want to get treatment anymore. They're say they're transfusion dependent, and they have like leukemia, and they're going for transfusions every month, and then every two weeks, and then every week, and then every week isn't enough. And you know they might even have to have um, support before a week, and then they might say that who you know, puts I just them don't into hospice? Who puts them into what's hospice? That? A doctor. What's, what's, does a doctor? Uh, it's a whole um, team. It's a whole team, and the the nurse or the liaison from that hospice. Um, in my agency, it was our director, usually, uh, would go out and meet with that patient. And usually, it was a call from a physician or a hospital saying, you know, uh, Mr. So and So is home, and we'd like him. We've talked with him about hospice. And she would go right out, you know. And then it's a whole um, a whole interdisciplinary team. It includes to to determine if that patient is eligible for hospice, because it wouldn't be for somebody that needs custodial care. It would be someone that has um, a short time to live generally and would benefit from the program. So on that program, if you, um, for instance, for instance, if you have, um, say, somebody who's in their early nineties, yeah, and they can walk on their own, they can, they talk, they, they have an excellent appetite, they're eating all the time, just some, some dementia issues, but nothing that's you know, impeding the functions other than maybe short-term memory. Um, mm-hmm. Would that person be eligible for hospice? No. What that if they had a, like a What if they had like a low grade leukemia, um, but it wasn't it was wasn't doing anything. It was just stable. Would if that their still leukemia was no? I I don't think so. Um, a it low would grade be a case by case. It would have to be a case by case um, situation, but it's. If someone has, um, I believe now that Medicare does not even accept dementia as a diagnosis. It has to be someone that's wasting, they're not eating, oh. Uh, oh. they're 
debilitated, they're having difficulty to take care of themselves or difficulty getting out of bed, they have specific criteria that they use for um, patients Hospice? with Yes, and for and particularly it, for those different? non-oncology. Oh, yeah. Is it um different but is it different for different states in, in the California? Um well, it can be different with different hospices. And the the reason really? why I say that, yes, it can be. It can be on how much they can financially afford. Like, um, particularly like with a younger woman, say she has uh, metastatic ovarian cancer, she's transfusion Mm -hmm. dependent, and she wants to uh, survive until her daughter's graduation or wedding or something like a key event. And and sometimes uh, they have an open hospice concept. We did in our hospice that we, because, because it's a package deal, the hospice is responsible for all the care within that patient's day. So that means they wouldn't be going out and getting transfusions. They wouldn't be running back and forth to the hospital. They wouldn't be getting um, uh, chemo and radiation unless that was part of the plan with the hospice and they uh, determined that, yes, they would support that um, for quality of life for that patient. So, and some patients, some hospices run on such a shoestring they can't afford it. Some hospices yeah. that get big endowments, they they're more apt to do that. They they have to absorb all that cost for that patient. And really? That's why they mm. say yes. That's the key reason why when someone makes the decision to go on to hospice, it has to be really clear. Their goal is to be cared for at home. Um, they don't want to seek curative care anymore. Um, their goal would be for quality of life. And um, they, even if they call 911, 911 is mandated to do CPR. So they would, they, if they go to the hospital, and this happens, believe it or not, they go to the hospital, and then I see this patient in the ICU, and they're on a ventilator, and I look and see, oh, my goodness, they're a hospice patient. Why are they in the hospital? Someone called 911. The ambulance mm-hmm. was bringing the patient in. They went into respiratory failure, required uh, to be put on a ventilator, and here they are in a hospital when they chose to die at home. And that happens yeah. a lot. Yeah, I have I have a a, a friend who was um, taking care of somebody that was a friend, and his wish was to die at home, but she didn't get that, so she kept calling nine one one when he was talking to himself in his sleep or whatever. They'd haul him to the hospital. He'd be in the hospital for a day or two, and then back home. She did that twice in one week. And I really had to take her aside and I had to say, you're not doing what his wishes are. Exactly. The last thing he wants is to be hauled off to the hospital and go through this. You have to yeah. stop. You, you know, you have, have to, to stop this. Decision. Exactly, Denise. And then the thing is, then they have to make the decision, what if they can't get off that ventilator? Not only that, if they have not revoked their hospice benefit, 
the hospice pays for the ICU or hospital stay. And it can be thousands and thousands of dollars. And if I knew that, I would talk to the family and say, do you understand? I mean, you can always go back on hospice, but there would have to be a conversation like, what are your goals? You know, mm-hmm. what is, mm-hmm. you know, have a family team meeting and say, what are your goals? Because they don't realize that someone's footing this bill, you know. If yeah, yeah. And then the thing is, if they revoke their benefit and go in the hospital and their insurance or Medicare, someone is paying for the stay, then Medicare, and they're not going to keep going on and off the benefit. That's not appropriate for hospice. And they will run out of hospice benefit. That is no not kidding. a forever thing. Yes, and we've had patients that in my career I've seen that, and especially they'll down here where they'll have one hospice and they're on it, and they could be really sick, and then they panic, and uh, for whatever, their symptoms aren't well managed or they don't understand or whatever it is, um, they end up in a hospital, and there's so many hospitals around, and then they go on to hospice. It could be a different hospice. It's like a, a yo-yo type of thing. And, yes, you can actually run out of hospice. They have uh, specific hospice benefit periods, and the whole team has to determine, is that patient uh, appropriate to remain on the hospice benefit? Because, after all, you know, um, we'd want to use it judiciously. So, Mm -hmm. like my mother, for instance, is a patient. She was in the hospital all the time. She had congestive heart failure in Vermont. She had pneumonia. She lived at the hospital. And, you know, she wouldn't listen to anything I said, uh, basically. And then one day she made the decision she uh, didn't want to go back and forth to the hospital anymore. And she went on to the hospice benefit. And actually it was in my old hospice territory. And her symptoms got so much better being on hospice because she had um, emphysema and congestive heart failure. She was so well managed that she actually went off the benefit and went back onto palliative care. And they followed her just the same. And she made a couple trips out here to Arizona. She lived at her summer camp. But then when she started getting sicker again, then she went back onto the hospice benefit. So, you know, that's the nice thing about it. If you graduate from hospice or palliative care, you know, um, a lot of times they'll do, um, at least back home, they'll do like a a phone check and make sure you're okay or they'll Uh call you or, you know, that kind of stuff. But basically, one is for somebody with life-limiting or life-threatening disease. It's for somebody that isn't ready to uh, not stop treatment. And then the other one is for someone that's made the decision that they don't want to pursue curative unless it's for, uh, you know, a specific event or something like that or sometimes uh, palliative radiation or chemotherapy to shrink the tumor so they don't have as much pain, you know, that kind uh-huh. of stuff. Yeah. Well, let's um... – talk a little bit about the different insurances and the key points that we might need to know? Well, that's a, that's a good one because that is where I see, especially with the elderly, uh, they just do not understand their insurance at all. 
Um, they say the average person knows more about the refrigerator um, warranty than no they dear. do about their. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's really true. And in my book, I gave a couple examples that were really tough examples of people that had really poor insurance. Um, the the key thing is um, if you are 65, if you are a U.S. citizen or a permanent legal um, resident for five years, um, you or your spouse worked and paid Medicare taxes for at least 10 years, or you've been disabled for two years, you are qualified for Medicare A and B. Medicare A is inpatient, hospice, uh, skilled nursing facility, and what they call um, um, acute long-term care hospitals. Medicare B is outpatient. Now, with Medicare A, people think it's an annual benefit. And I'm starting with Medicare because that seems to be the biggest problem. Um, People think that it's an annual benefit. It is not. It's a 60-day benefit period, believe it or not. So say someone was in one hospital and they went home for a few days and then they went in another hospital and then they went into another hospital, which happens, believe it or not, or they're transferred to a tertiary center, then all those days count for their Medicare days. So in that 60-day benefit period, um, if you're in the hospital, you have, say someone, um, and they've been deemed inpatient, that's the other thing, because there's levels of care now with insurance. Not everybody in the hospital is inpatient. They could be under what they call outpatient or observation, and it's not inpatient. It means that they're not well enough to go home from the emergency room but they need to be monitored, either like with chest pain on telemetry or, you know, something like that. They, they need to be there where they can be. They don't want them to be uh, in the emergency room. It isn't really appropriate. So at any one time, there can be a large number of patients in the hospital that are observation. Um, and the reason why I say that is, is uh, Medicare mandates that we tell patients what status they are in. And I have had patients that have told me that no one talked to them about that. They had come from another hospital. And they have to not only be told what status they're in, they have to be um, uh, feel that they're safe to be discharged from the hospital. And they have to sign that they feel safe and they're not that kind of thing. But in that 60-day benefit period, um, what I wanted to tell everybody is, In 2019, there's what they call a $1,364 deductible for that inpatient stay. That is for original Medicare. And I'll just just talk about original Medicare first, and then I'll talk about some of the managed cares and things. But um, 1 through 60 of those hospital days are, are covered under that one deductible amount of 1364 in 2019 days 61 through 90 so say this person um, has not been discharged they've been transferred to another hospital or they've been in a, one of those long-term acute care hospitals which you know they're on dialysis or 
um, extreme wound care, um, that kind of stuff. They have to be in those places. Um, that puts them into $341 a day deductible. People don't realize that. Under Medicare, that's the end of their benefit. At day 90, 91 and beyond, you have what you call a 60-day um, reserve, lifetime reserve day. Um, once you use that in your lifetime, it's gone. And it's $682 a day copay. So if someone has not been out of the hospital, they've gone from one hospital to another hospital to another hospital, and they're really, really sick. And Or they've gone home for a few days, they've come back. If they have not been out of that hospital or that rehab for 60 days, they can run out of benefit. And people do not realize that. So what we'd want to do is talk to them about their benefit. And a lot of times it's the first time they've ever heard it. Or they get right. a letter saying, you're approaching your lifetime reserve day, and they have no idea what they're talking about. Now, well, what, are they, what, someone, are these people, what are these people supposed to do that don't have any money? They have to leave the hospital and go home, and they don't have any care? No, no. We either, A, um, if they're, if they're uh, living below the poverty level, uh, we would see if we could get them applied for a secondary insurance if they don't have one, like um, Medicaid or Access. Or, and if we think there's going to be long, long-term care, uh, what they call LTACs here, um, it's a Medicaid program to keep people out of nursing homes. And that's called different things in different states. It's a Medicaid-funded program. But that is somebody that you don't see that they're going to be going home for a long time or you think that um, they're going to need long-term support to even remain in their home. But the, if they don't have Medicaid or if they're not eligible for Medicaid, we, we, that's why it's so important to know what their insurance is because um, – if they have a secondary insurance, they're going to pick up that copay day. So when they're at day 61 through 90, that $341 so you talking, so a day is going to go to the secondary insurance. Are you, are you talking about secondary insurance with, with like Medicare where it, yes. it picks up a 20%? Yes, because that's the thing. Uh, Medicare B, um, we have to pay for. Um, some people don't want to spend the money or they don't have the money. And it's generally around $135, somewhere around there. And it's, you know, if you have a higher income, it could be a little bit higher. But um, that picks up 80% of your outpatient. That means you're responsible for 20% of that that service, that doctor's right. office. And that's what the forest. secondary insurance pays for. That's Yes, that's why it's so good to have a secondary insurance or um, some people are fortunate enough, like federal employees, IBM, um, GE, just those kind of big companies. Um, a lot of companies have, used to have it, but they have what they call a carve-out insurance, which is a retirement insurance that will mm -hmm. stand on its own. Now, in that particular case, I don't want to get into it too much, 
but um, if you know someone's approaching their lifetime reserve days and they're running out of Medicare, you can have the primary insurance flipped to secondary, and the carve-out insurance can be the primary. And that's only for that particular kind of carve-out insurance, like a, a Medicomp insurance you can't do that with. Um, and that's why in Arizona I've noticed that a lot of people have the Medicare Advantage plans here. Um, when our snowbirds come here, they generally will have traditional Medicare because it's covered wherever you are in the United States. Um, mm-hmm. But if if they if they take um, an Ad- Medicare Advantage, that covers the Part A, the Part B, and generally has <coughs> a prescription. So it's right. like a it's like a package deal. The only drawback for that is is I always try to tell the patient if you have some serious health issues and you have in the hospital a lot um, every time they go to the hospital they have that deductible whether it's the uh, 1364 it, it, they usually go by Medicare guidelines but say someone has had four hospitalizations in a year, what they tell me is they go to different hospitals because they still owe the other hospitals. It's a lot of money for some of these people on a fixed income. They would might be better off to buy a, a, a supplemental plan so that they can get their co-pays covered. You see what I mean? Yeah, I completely see it. Yeah, that and, and, and it's they're going to have to pay that hundred, you know, whatever a month. But if you figure thirteen hundred and something here or thirteen hundred, you know, they all mm-hmm. and they've told me that. I mean, that's what they tell me. So yeah. If if you're um, if you are now um, uninsured, you can't get your insurance from um, your employer for whatever reason. Um, there is the Affordable Care Act that was um, enacted in 2010. Now, when I moved here, um, of course, we didn't have the Affordable Care Act, and we had a large number of working people that were uninsured. They either couldn't get insurance, and when you have a catastrophic event, um, they come into the hospital, they have no way to pay for this. Um, you don't have companies that want to do care when they go home, if they have to have IV antibiotics, if they're very complicated, or you know what I mean? It's it's like catastrophic for them. So the Affordable Care Act um, has a lot of um, people that have said a lot about it, but for someone that has no other way to get insurance, um, it's better than nothing. I guess that's what I could say. It's very expensive for some people. Um, they don't have great networks. Uh, they have high deductibles, high co-pays. But if something happened that you had a heart attack, God forbid, or some major thing, you're going to get your hospital stay, and you can get follow-up care when you get out. So, and it is the Affordable Care Act is income-based, so you can get a little break on that if you mm-hmm. um, if if you work with them on it. Uh, the other thing would be, of course, our general health insurance um, that we get through our employers. Some patients um, have choices with their employers. 
and some patients don't have choices. They're kind of stuck with what they've got. And and in that case, you've just got to work with what you've got. You want to make sure that um, all your providers are contracted with your insurance. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that, or they might have specialists seeing them that aren't contracted with their insurance. It can be really problematic. And then uh, what I would do is help write a letter so that they could have special, you know, special circumstance with that physician because. You know, what happens if they're out of network, um, the patient is liable for all billable costs. The the insurance is going to pay um, out-of-network benefits, and then the patient gets um, billed the remainder. So, I mean, it can be a lot of money because billable oh, yeah. charges are much different than, yeah, contracted cut charges. Yeah, and then, costs uh, are kind of crazy. It's hard for people so, I mean, the final thing would be, of course, um, uh, access or Medicaid. Um, that's for anybody that uh, meets the income requirements. The The thing is now in most hospitals, they are uh, usually have a service that comes into the hospital. I know we did, and it was super. Um, they just met them in the emergency room and got them started, and they have um, – a direct link with the Department of Economic Security. So they can see the, the and, and especially if it's somebody that's got some catastrophic thing that you know is going to have to need a lot of services when they get out, they can rush it in those kind of cases. Um, otherwise, what you're doing is you're going on with different pharmaceutical companies trying to get meds for your patients, you know, that kind of thing. And that can be really time-consuming if you can get their meds at all. Yeah. But you want yeah. patients to take their meds, you know. So right. those are the kind of things with insurance, I think, the key things. But the biggest thing about Medicare is it's the um, accumulated days um, within that 60-day benefit period. And, um, for instance, um, they keep track of that so they know where – Someone at the hospital keeps track of that. They they know where they're at with their days because they go on. They have access to the site with Medicare, um, and that's kind of that's kind of like where I would look and look at that patient. They've been all over town. Um, they can't get home, and why isn't anybody talk to them about palliative care or hospice? Mm-hmm. That's kind of like, you know, when, and, and I'm very emotional about it because it's awful to see someone suffering when they yeah. don't need to be. That's right. That's and right. I've seen it, you know, and I would just yeah. kind of get my gumption up and go in and see them. And, and particularly if they're really, really sick, they've got all these resistant infections because they've picked them up in all the different places like MRSA sure, or sure. and then they have to full, the nurse, you know, has other patients, they're very busy and they've got to fully gown, glove, mask, the whole thing every time they go in that room. So that's kind of like what prompted me. I'm sitting across from this room and the gentleman was screaming in pain. Oh. And I read his chart, and it was like, that's the other thing. Like, what is, where is this disease heading? Where yeah. is she going? 
Like, why aren't people looking at this? And he was dying. He was so in pain and screaming when they turned him. And it it happens. I see it. And I called his wife. Yeah, I called his wife, and I said, can I talk to you? And she came right up. And mm-hmm. I said, I don't know you, and I don't know your husband. I talked with the doctor, um, you know, and think, this is what he's telling me. Uh-huh. And I think your husband would be comfortable if he were in hospice care. And she said, my husband, this was like in the summer, and she said, uh-huh. my husband has not been home since last fall. Why didn't anybody tell me this? Oh, my and gosh. that's the thing. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's like not everybody wants hospice. Not right. everybody wants palliative care. But we need to be offering it to those patients. Yeah. And, and that's kind of like where, you know, if someone keeps coming in the hospital over and over and over, in my book I talked about a, it was a very gruff old man that, he had really bad emphysema, and he was so noncompliant. He never took his meds, and, you know, he just didn't do anything that they had been talking to. And he would come in and end up on a ventilator. And, and I looked, and he had, like, I don't know how many now, I mean, 16, 17 admissions to the hospital. And, you know, finally I got my nerve up to go in and talk with him and, you know, to see if he wanted home health. And, no, they didn't want home health. And, you know, what would they do? And, you know, trying to at least get somebody in that home to to work with him to see mm-hmm. why isn't he taking his meds or can he not afford his meds? I mean, who knows, you know? Right, Or can right. he not get to get pick him up? Or, so, you know, the next thing I know, he's back in the hospital again. And so I went in to see him. And, of course, you know, he's on a ventilator and talked with his family and, you know, and, you know, that's kind of the thing. I had to, like, go very slowly with him because he had a lifetime of behaviors. And, you know, I knew he was going to end up being on a ventilator and they weren't going to be able to get him off eventually. And he finally, um, you know, we had a few, you know, more admissions after that, but he finally uh, had talked with his family. They all met gently and talked with the doctor. And, he chose not to be on that ventilator but a certain number of days. And, you know, he had finally, for the first time, um, some control over his life, you know, and death. And I think that's the biggest thing, like with palliative care and hospice, is like we have to be listening to the patients because everybody goes in those rooms, everybody tells them something, they're clinging, you know, I, I I liken it to the expression where they feel they can be fixed. And sometimes there's no fixing. It's like a domino effect. And, and everybody's working and working and working to get them, you know, stable. And, you know, and then they go off to a nursing home. And one of my physicians told me that a friend of hers, and I won't go into it too much, but was just saying that probably 95% of these patients, this is what he said, um, are in the nursing homes for rehab that are really not rehabable. 
that they either can't do it, um, they don't really want to be doing it, they want to be home, you know, yeah. and and it's like, okay, you're going to be discharged. You're going to be going to a, you're going to have to go to a um, rehab unit, you know, because you're not strong enough to go home. But, you know, the bigger picture is now what? Then what? You know? So I guess that's kind of what drives me because I just feel like not everybody is going to embrace hospice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Some people we might think, oh, you know, why isn't he on hospice? They never will be, but at least they would have palliative care and have a physician that is board certified in pain and symptom management, and they could still be followed and have better quality of life, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the biggest thing. So hospice isn't the be-all, end-all for everybody, uh, but definitely... Um, we could be doing a whole lot better finding out what they want and taking the time. And, you know, it's like, oh, no, they can't have palliative care. Uh, They're followed by oncology. Oh, no. And then you go in and see the patient yourself and say, you know, they're working. I said, this is what palliative care is. Is that anything that you'd be interested? Yes, that's what you hear. So you give them the information on some different palliative cares. You have to offer at least three that you would recommend, and then they can take it from there. You know, Mm -hmm. I think rather than having no support with their um, symptom management or having some support, I mean, that's the difference, you know. I guess you can tell I'm very emphatic about this whole thing. Well, it's been your, your life's work, basically. Yeah, yeah, it is. And that's the thing. I just, I I see it and I think, oh, you know, he could have, you know, someone dies and then you think they could have been in their own home. Most people want to be in their own home when they die, but because they haven't planned. And that's sometimes what I tell patients is, this is what we have to have you start thinking about. What do you mm-hmm. want? What What is your goal? If your goal mm-hmm. is to stay home, how are you going to accomplish that? Because right. if, if you don't set your plans in place, because, I mean, we live down here next to, like, the elderly retirement population in the southwest. I mean, it is extremely aged people, Some some of them down here. And... It's like if you do not plan for your own end of life, then the decision will be taken away from you because you're going to be put in the hospital and you're going to just be put through the system and you'll end up somewhere that you're not going to probably want. Not Mm -hmm. always if you've got a strong advocate for a family, but so often that's what I see is, is that, you know, a little bit of planning, like how could we accomplish that? What services could we get set up now so people can stay in their home? And and, and I think only three, what is it, 3% of the population of the elderly are in nursing homes. The rest are in their homes muddling along, and they do just fine. But True. They could, yeah. we could do a lot better to keep them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. It's it's too bad that they haven't come up with some 
law or something where um, a social worker or somebody has to address that with the patients. You know, when they're. Well, you know, in Vermont, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up, Denise, because in Vermont, it's a mandate. Yeah, so I meant to mandate. Anyone, yeah. yeah, they they have to be given all their options. And that's mm-hmm. really what it is. It's like these are your options that you and, – and it's not up for us to say, oh, that's right or that's wrong, and you can choose this, but this could be the outcome that happens when you do that. But at least give them that. That's why I like to have palliative care in the hospital. And yeah. If they have that conversation because they have that comfort around those kind of hard issues, Mm -hmm. they can talk with that patient and family. And even if they don't want to pursue it, they've begun the conversation around it. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. You know, if you ask someone, have you ever talked with anybody about what you'd like um, in your end-of-life needs? No. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, we don't talk about it in our culture. We just don't, mm-hmm. you know. Um, it's it's like, oh, I can't understand why you would want to do some, that kind of work. It must be so depressing. And, you know, it's just the opposite. It's very centering to be around somebody that's that sick. You know, your own stuff is pretty insignificant when you're with somebody. Yeah, that's, that's true. That's very and true. And the people that do end-of-life care love it because you get so much spiritually out of it as well. It's just such a win-win for everybody. So, I mean, that's kind of that's kind of how I feel. It's like we could just be doing so much better than we are. It's just, true. I, you know, people, you know, especially elderly, they are from the generation where they did not question care. Um, mm-hmm. Younger people, you know, in their families, they're a lot more interactive with the team. But True. elderly people, you know, they just, you know, you know, and I think their family thinks, well, they're in the hospital and, you know, it doesn't look good, but we're hoping that they're going to get better. And, you know, it, every time somebody goes in the hospital, their functional status goes down a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. In our In our hospice, um, the medical director told us that 50% of the the patients that are severely ill in the ICU will not survive a year. That's what he told me. Hmm. So you've got all these patients that are so ill that they can't get out of bed by themselves. They can't prepare their meals. They have extreme fatigue or you know, shortness of breath or pain or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, and they're not able to maintain themselves at home anymore. So, you know, hence you see all these rehabs that have shot up around and, you know, that's what I was going to say in my book. Um, I I just have read the best book. It's by um, Dr. Atul Gawande. He's a physician out of Boston. And the book is Being Mortal, Illness, Medicine, and What Matters at the End. It is fabulous for anybody to read. It's a very quick read, but mm-hmm. he he talks about aging in America and um, having 
geriatric physicians and the shortage of them and what different communities are doing in the United States so that we move away from the long-term uh, nursing home kind of situations. And, yeah, that would, you be, know, even that would be nice. It's, it's a beautiful book and how he learned and grew and how he became more comfortable talking about um, end-of-life wishes and needs and things like that, you know. Mm. Um yeah, it's a it's a great read, and I won't I don't want to give it away, but it was just like oh wow, it's such a great book. <laughs> you know, it it well, was just so relevant, you know. Yeah, well, we've really enjoyed having you on. We're running out of time. We've actually gone over. Um, have we really? So oh, yeah, it's just gone so quickly. Where can people purchase your book, Case Management: A Palliative Perspective? By Rhoda. Am I pronouncing your last name correctly? Is it Nader or Nieder? Nader. Nader. Okay. Yeah, like bread where, without the K. Yeah. Where can they um, get your book? Basically, basically anywhere. Um, it's okay. on Amazon. It has a Kindle version. Um, there's on Barnes and Noble, and the oh, Nook has been set up. Um, it's even on e- on eBay. I saw it on there. So uh, pretty much anybody that sells books has it. Um, the pa- it's a paperback. It's a short read. Okay. Um, and it, it it just has uh, – what I actually did was put a lot of the Medicare information in there for people so that they can see and, you know, start questioning their own benefit. But it's um, it's pretty much on all the book sites now. If they just type my name in, they don't have to type the title. Okay. And if and if okay. they do, if if any of you do purchase the book, I do ask if you could leave a review because that would really help me a lot. And you know, oh, whether it's good idea. or bad or yeah. what you think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Thank you, Denise. Thank you so much. Continue your wonderful work and the passion that you have for it. You're a blessing. Oh, thank you, Denise. Thank you so <laughs> much for having me. Okay. I appreciate Take it. Care. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. All right, that sums up our program for today. Join us next Wednesday. This was a special show today. Bye-bye. We celebrate our listeners worldwide and invite you to contact Denise at www.healthmedianow.com with any questions you may have. And follow her on Twitter at Health Media Now and Facebook at Health Media Now. For those interested in an advertising campaign on her show, contact Lisa at KnowledgeWorksPub.com. Be sure to visit GotCancerNowWhat.com for information on Denise Messenger's award-winning book, Got Cancer? Now What? <laughs>